HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Good Sunday afternoon to you. This is Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Anne Saxelby, and our show today is being produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Wiener and sponsored by Fairway Market. What do you have in Westchester? Pelham, to be specific, that offers you free parking and under one roof, the most enormous selection of organic fruits and vegetables, organic and all-natural groceries, the finest butchers and prime and grass-fed meats and poultry on earth, and the most expertly chosen seafood, olive oils, cheeses, uh, that are lowest price of uh, standard groceries. You have Fairway. It's like no other market. Fairway is opening in Pelham on Wednesday, the 14th of April, or has opened uh, 14th of April. For more information, go to www.fairwaymarket.com. Uh, so on the show today, I am very pleased to welcome Judy Shad, owner and cheesemaker at Capriol Dairy in Indiana. Hi, Judy. Hi there. How are you? I'm good on this rainy day in uh southern indiana oh rainy over there right yeah the derby was all messed up huh the derby went on as planned in spite of the rain <laughs> but you said you moved your party inside so we it's moved not our party inside and uh which is sort of traditional to it's always a question do you want to be there for the big show or do you want to have your own show and where the food is really a whole lot better <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I imagine the the uh, the food at the farm is uh, is you know, you know, heads and shoulders above what you would get at uh, at the track. What is it called? Churchill Downs? Is that? It's called Churchill Downs, and uh, this is always the first Saturday in May, rain or shine, and so it's a big week here. The whole week prior to Derby is full of parties and lots of entertaining. It's always a big week for the cheese plant. Wow. So how tell, um, tell us where Capriol is located and how close you guys are to uh, the site of the uh, Kentucky Derby. Well, we're right above that very famous line, the Mason-Dixon line, which is the Ohio River. Uh, we're about 30 minutes from downtown Louisville in the hills of southern Indiana. Our farm is about 80 acres um, on, on a hill on top of a hill. 
And so <laughs> Louisville is our big hometown. And um, even though we're southern Indiana, we, we sort of can consider ourselves, you know, partial Kentuckians. Absolutely. Well, it seems like landscape-wise and just, yeah, proximity-wise to Louisville, there's more sort of culturally there than maybe even with the rest of the, the state, the northern part. It's a great, um, a great food culture in northern Kentucky, and it's sort of the gateway to the south. So most of the traditions are southern food traditions, which is what I grew up with. And, um, and those are great traditions, you know, really grounded in um, homegrown, home-cooked meals and um, all the traditional things you think of from the South, country ham, uh, a lot of corn, of course, grits, hominy. Um, mm, I just had some polenta for breakfast. It was Polenta, okay, but, you know, polenta is not quite the same thing as cornmeal. Oh, <laughs> you're right. That's why I'm not close. a chef, you know. <laughs> I'm just so like, we it's try- made from corn. It's delicious. <laughs> we combine all those things with cheese to the best of our ability to, um, y- you know, to bring a little something new to the cuisine because cheese really is not that indigenous to, you know, the food traditions from this area. And especially not goat cheese. Especially not goat cheese. We sort of... Um, we sort of write the menu for the southern part of the state and the northern part of Kentucky. That's fantastic. So how, how did uh, your goat cheeses play a part in, uh, in the festivities this weekend? Did you guys have a lot of people stopping by the farm or big markets? or? Uh, we had big markets, and then, of course, um, it's on the menu in a lot of restaurants in northern Kentucky particularly. And so it's... Um, it's, it's cheese trays, it's uh, um, in hors d'oeuvres and salads, and, of course, uh, cheese grits, which is sort of one of the staples of any good derby party is that you have to have cheese grits. So what are and, some of the other things that you have? I know, like, mint juleps, but that's about it. Oh, mint juleps, of course. Uh, country ham, uh, which is, um, you know, one of those wonderful things that, takes a lot of preparation, but um, but I kind of cheat a little bit. I have a couple of places that that um, small farms in in western Kentucky that we order ham from regularly, and mm-hmm. um, so that's a big that's always a big part of it. And of course, all the other spring things, asparagus, and our asparagus salad, of course, always has fresh goat cheese, and. Um, and anything that seems to be happening this time of the year, primarily greens, are, you know, are, of course, the big thing during this season. And spring and goat cheese, of course, fresh goat cheese, you know, that's when uh, it, it first starts to happen. So it, it does. It is, I think, the cheese of spring. You know, it's, it's light. We're coming off of winter and a lot of big, heavier dishes. And, and goat cheese is just, in and of itself, I think a spring cheese, light and refreshing and lemony, and combines beautifully with all those spring vegetables. I love it with radishes, for instance, mm. and, um, and with asparagus, it's wonderful. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you're making me hungry, even though I just uh, <laughs> finished my breakfast here. <laughs> um, well, so goat cheese now, of course, you have made it a staple in uh, southern Indiana and northern Kentucky, but it was not always so. And I was hoping that we could talk a little bit on the show today about um, the American farmstead cheese movement in general and um, how, you know, you were kind of at the forefront of this movement, along with a couple of other women who were all making goat cheese. Um, I remember when you were back, when you were in New York a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this a little bit and uh, it just seems very interesting that, you know, some of the uh, sort of first generation of American farmstead cheesemakers were women like you and Laura Chanel and Paula Lambert and uh, Mary Keene and, how goat cheese was kind of in in a way the first uh the first wave of American farmstead cheese. Yes, I think it was um I think it was a part of the whole well, we no longer call it Nouvelle Cuisine, but it was a part of that late seventies, early eighties thing, maybe a part of the back to the land. Um that was where I think a lot of us were coming from anyway, but but it was also supported by uh, a whole movement, you know, to revive regional foods with a new twist, to eat more locally. Um, it's interesting, I think, that we're talking about that. That was 30 years or so or more, and it seems that it's taken maybe 30 years for the whole idea to, to really, really catch on. It's but, true. It's um, like the work of a whole generation has gone into it. You guys were really the pioneers, and so because of you, it seems now more widely accepted and, and you know, and uh, and more you can find these products. But when you I think it was kind of a beginning. I, I know that when many of us started, and you mentioned Paula and Mary, and I think really the very first person to do um, farmstead cheeses in the U.S. was on the East Coast, and it was Letty Kilmoyer. Uh, Laura Chanel, of course, on the West Coast, but Letty even predated um, Laura in her efforts, and she was in Hubbardston, Massachusetts, and owned Westfield Farm. Oh, okay. Um, and she was really my mentor. When I began to make cheese, I had to heavily persuade her to let me come and work with her um, for a week or so, just to make sure that this was something I wanted to do commercially. But all of us really began with that, with making cheese in our kitchens. And um, we've laughed a lot with Ricky Carroll, who has New England Cheese Making uh, Company, and she had written a little book called Cheese Making Made Easy. In fact, it's still out there. For it's us. a great book. If anyone needs to have that as a reference, Ricky Carroll. Um, yeah, home cheese making made easy. Wonderful, wonderful book. You really can. Uh, in fact, just yesterday I did a cheese making workshop and we made a fresh cheese with her recipes and uh, and it was it turned out beautifully. So, well, it makes me laugh a little bit because not only can you, but we did, <laughs> 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 and we all laughed that she was the mother of us all because we all began um, usually making cheese with our own milk for our families. Um, too much milk, too many goats. We were sort of city people who had come back to the country. And, um, and cheese making was just, 
was just cooking. It was sort of the natural outgrowth of the kitchen, just like making jelly and canning tomatoes and um, and doing all the other things you do on a farm to preserve food. So it it really took cheese making back to to probably its origins, which you know, which was which were to preserve too much milk. Sure, absolutely. And have it at a time when you didn't need it, and it's not. It's not really, and I don't think that there weren't there weren't some artisan cheesemakers out there. There were, you know, there were there were people like Crowley and um, Igvella on the West Coast. But sure, but those those I feel like were a little different because they had held over from uh, an even previous tradition. I know, you know, in Igvella's case in California, there were the Italians who, of course, in the beginning part of the century, learned to make Italian style cheeses for all the people who. Uh, the Italian population out in California, and Crowley was kind of a holdover from you know the old New England days where exactly we did a lot of Colby and and uh, cheddars and things right. like that. Um, and there were still wonderful cheddars out there. They were most of them were vacuumed. Uh, in other words, they were aged in plastic. And um, so, except for a few um, uh, of those, uh, a few traditions. You know, we had sort of lost ourselves to industrial cheeses. Absolutely. And so I feel like it's very interesting that um, what started essentially, you know, as maybe a, it seems like a, a kind of collective conscious kind of thing that, um, you know, a lot of people had a similar idea at the same time. Or maybe it wasn't that way. Maybe, um, you know, women like Letty and, and, you know, maybe it was kind of, I don't know, maybe you can explain, was was no, it sort I of a process of mentoring and then those people would mentor other people? Exactly, exactly. And I think you're quite on target. I think it was sort of a collective consciousness. And maybe it was an outgrowth of this whole, um, I mean, initially it was inspired by the idea of producing your own food. And, um, and out of that, people did tend to find each other. And as we became more involved in cheese making on on a potentially commercial level we found each other that's that's for sure and um it was a great support group we and and still is you know we um we have just we were recently just back from san francisco where where i worked with um really my best friend uh for years has been mary keen at cypress grove chef the home and of Mary Humboldt Fog, which is... Uh, does Humboldt Fog, and um, we, we have a lot of little laughs about uh, when, we, when we do things together about our favorite cheeses. <laughs> but, um, but, yes, Mary certainly was one of those, and, and Mary began as um, a mother of four young daughters, and, um, and she did this for economic reasons to help feed her family. We did it because I had somehow caught the farm bug and, and come back to, to the farm and knew nothing about livestock and ended up with goats just because they were cute. <laughs> and <laughs> like all cute things, they tend to multiply. And um, suddenly, you know, we're swimming in milk and have no idea what to do with it all. And so it begins there. But, but the next step was, I think, the interesting step. And that was, um, oh, we can do this. Uh, well, let's make goat cheese. Well, and, the, and, you know, we've all laughed about that as being 
the start of the big step, the the step where we weren't really looking forward and we weren't really looking back. Oh, let's just do it. And I've always laughed at Miles Kahn, who um, who began Coach Farm in New York many years ago. And Miles' comment was when people ask him how he got started making goat cheese, his comment always was, just lucky, I guess. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, I think that would be, we have to take a really quick break, so I feel like that would be the perfect uh, little segue. When we come back in a minute, we can talk about that big step and how, what you did next and how Capriole's grown from there. Okay. Stick with us on Cutting the Curd. Hallelujah, I'm ready I can hear the voice sing the song of Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Our show today has been sponsored by Fairway Market, like no other market. If you want more information about Fairway, you can visit them on the web at www.fairwaymarket.com. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, and my guest today is Judy Shad, cheesemaker and owner of Capriole Dairy in Greenville, Indiana. Um, And we were just talking about the big step that uh, you and Mary Keene and everyone kind of decided to to make to go from making cheese in your kitchen to having a you know full-blown cheese business yes and you know it really was a huge step it was very serendipity i don't think any of us gave it an incredible amount of thought. It was an ex- <laughs> it was, <laughs> I feel the same way. I started my business that way too. I just kind of was like, I want to have a cheese shop. And yeah, so I opened I it. A cheese shop. And then you learn all the hard parts after. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, the first part, as you know, I mean, starting any business is sometimes, in some ways, it's the most fun of all, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, yeah, you don't know what you're doing. Everything's brand new. Right. You don't know that you can fail. That may be the best part of all, is that nobody tells you that this is, well, they did tell us it wasn't a good idea, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) actually many people told me it wasn't a good idea, but... But you're willing to try anything, too, which, you know, as you get more established in your business, then it's a challenge to keep trying those new things, so... Exactly. And when we began, it was very much, um, we spoke about this before the break, that it was very much a network of people who kind of knew each other because they were doing the same thing, that we found each other in some way. Um, and, And one of the major ways we found each other was through the American Cheese Society, which was at that time a tiny organization. Uh, when was that started? Was that started in the 70s? It was started in the early 70s by um, uh, Kozakowski, um, whose name, uh, first name is escaping me, Frank Kozakowski, and by Ricky Carroll and several other people who were really dedicated to the idea of building American cheeses. And, um, and Ricky Carroll, as, as owner of, Ameri- of New England Cheese Making, was very conscious of the fact that there were 
um, there were some young entrepreneurial cheesemakers out there who she had been supplying with home cheesemaking supplies who were kind of graduating gradually into the commercial area. And so she was in touch with these people. Kazakowski was at Carnell and, um, and knew a lot, has written um, a book, wrote the definitive book on cheesemaking. What's the title of the book? It's called Cheese and Fermented Foods. Okay. Um, and it still is the Bible, even though it was written, you know, well over 30 years ago. So it, those people, along with some retailers, people like Ari Weinschlag from Zingerman's and, um, and, and several others, really combined to try to make the society go. And initially, it was just a group of people getting together. Uh, that was in like 83, 84, and 85. There were years when nothing happened, <laughs> when people just sort of wrote to each other. And by the time I got involved, which was 1987 or 88, um, and went to my first American Cheese Society, you know, we were all there. Paula Lambert, uh, Mary was there, Mary Keene was there, um, and Letty Kamaria, who I mentioned earlier. And so that, that step into, um, into the commercial uh, phase of cheesemaking was, was, you know, was a big one. But I think, um, I think it did set the, sort of set the tone for people who came after because it took us maybe 10 years to prove that we were fairly successful and to open the doors to, um, to some artisan cheeses. Because, Absolutely. Uh, up until that point, what was available was fairly, was fairly industrial. And, and look where we are. I mean, there is now, I think, from a meeting where, the 1988 meeting where we probably tasted maybe 125 cheeses now, when you attend an American Cheese Society meeting, there's thirteen or fourteen hundred cheeses presented, all being made by small producers in the country. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's and, incredible, um, and and some not so small because um, many have, over a period of time, grown in different directions. We've all taken different paths, uh, depending, I think, on our situations. For instance, um, as your business begins to grow, as you know. Uh, there are, you have to make some choices, in, and what we had to decide to do was to remain farmstead because we did not have access to, to you know, to purchase To another milk, milk supply, mm-hmm. yeah. For all right. of our listeners out there, farmstead means that the cheese is made from the milk of the cheesemaker's own herd. Everything happens on the farm from, you know, raising the animals, milking the animals, making the cheese, and getting that cheese to market. So... Um, yeah, for somebody like you who didn't have access to other milk supplies, Farmstead, exactly. Farmstead was the way to go. And that's um, um, a very limited in ch- uh, choice in some ways, but it's also in many positive ways a very self-defining choice because it tells you who you are and what your business is. Um, you can only get so big based on the amount of land that you can, you know, uh, support animals on, and your cheese making can only grow to X amount because of all of that. It, it, is, it really revolves on itself, and the farm is quite the circle where one piece affects every other piece. And so when you started, were you on your the same piece of land that you're yes. on now? Okay. Yes, we were. 
So you already had that sort of idea of how big the farm was. Right. And, and we had no idea about about farming. We've had we really should do a book on the many fiascos of farming from, you know, growing asparagus to organic popcorn to <laughs> <laughs> to uh we had a million great ideas, but um but this one was the one that stuck and I I think, uh, and for many years we grew and grew and grew, but we always grew from within. For instance, one of the things that, that helps define what we do is that we have a closed herd because we learned very early on that bringing animals from everywhere was a source of, source of health problems and was really um, was really not realistic or cost-effective. Uh, it just didn't work. And yeah. so, um, so we closed the herd, which meant that Anytime we wanted growth, you know, it was going to be two or three years of planning before we actually saw the fruits of, of uh, that growth. Can you tell us real quick about how, you know, a goat, is, a goat is bred and then how long you have to wait for that, uh, for that baby to be a productive milker? Mm-hmm. It's a, little bit, it's a little bit quicker than it is with a cow <laughs> because um, normally we breed our animals... Um, in the, the about seven to eight months after they're born, so that they're going to they're going to have their first kids or babies uh, when they're about a year. Okay. Oh, a year to fifteen months is ideal, and any longer than that, and they tend to get overweight and have all kinds of problems later. So that's the ideal situation. So if, for instance, we decided tomorrow that we add, needed to add another. 50 animals into the herd, we would have to plan that for our major breeding season, which is in the fall. Mm-hmm. And so we would have to plan this year, 2010, to, um, to plan our breedings. And then it's going to be five months from then, so March, April, we would see the first kids. This is 2011. Mm-hmm. And by the fall of 2011, we would be able to breed those does. So, um, and they would have kids and, and have milk for the first time in 2012. So should we think about it, should we need to do it this year, it's going to be at least two years because, before we even see um, any milk resulting yeah. from increasing the herd size. And, um, and actually, since yearlings don't milk that much usually on their first freshening, uh, it's going to be an idea, and you know, it's about three to four years when they peak. It's actually going to be six years from now when we see um, when we see that that breeding program come to fruition. So it's so it's, interesting. It's like it's like the perfect model for a sustainable business. You know, it's like you yes. grow within reason. You have to plan. You know, for a certain you know a certain amount of time to pass before you'll be able to reap the benefits of what you're doing. It really causes you to have a holistic approach to you know everything you do on the farm. And I think, like like so many things that do move slowly, you know, you tend to learn the hard way. And that was maybe seven or eight years ago when we let the herd size get ten years ago when we let the herd size dwindle a bit. And, and, and that, that, that we, meant what? You went from how, how many goats down to... Well, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think at the same time our business was growing and we weren't really planning for that, which would probably be more likely because we went from about 200 milking animals to about 350 over the last 10 years. 
and we maintain a herd of about 500 so that we have milk year-round. And that's about max. We're maxed. We can't do any more than that. If we added another 50 animals on, there's a strain in the entire circle almost at every point, from the animal to the fields uh, to the cheese-making facilities. Um, you know, it's it's like Mother Nature keeping everything in check. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then, as as in any stressful situation, you're inviting problems. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you. I mean, because unfortunately, a half hour or a half hour always goes by too fast on this <laughs> show. But I, I was really interested to get your opinion about you know, so being a part of kind of the first wave of, um, you know these goat cheese makers and sort of the new, you know, the new guard of farmstead cheese making, what do you see for your own farm uh, sort of down the road or, or, um, you know, any of your, um, you know, compatriots, if you'd be willing to comment Um, because now you have mature businesses um, and yeah, what's, what's going to happen to those businesses uh, in the future? I think it's a good thing you're making us think about these things because <laughs> <laughs> because it's been a pretty fly by the seat of your pants serendipity philosophy, you know, from the very beginning. But but as it progresses, I'm beginning to see that you know I have to find um, I'm older. I'm not able to to do everything I did 25 years ago, and so we have to begin to look for. Other sources, other solutions. I mean, ideally, those will continue to be family businesses, but I mm-hmm. don't really, um, I don't see that in my imminent future. I think for other businesses which have grown very differently, for instance, which don't have animals anymore. Like um, um, like Paula down like in, Paula, in Texas. Our Mary, our Vermont Butter and Cheese, you know, it, where they rely on a group of suppliers, which is just as important as doing your own thing. Uh, they're supporting a lot of other producers. Those businesses are um, can evolve through sale or whatever. We're sort of stuck. <laughs> you know, we're living where we work, and uh, the farm is where we work. So I started asking myself the question you're asking 10 years ago, and I still don't have an answer. So if you come up with anything, <laughs> I... <laughs> Well, I you think know. you know there's an interesting and and you know of course when it when it's your your farm and your home and your family and your and your and you know your, and your world animal. and your uh-huh. animals it's an interesting thing but I feel like there is a, a sort of interesting gap that could be bridged between young people who want to get into farming and cheese making which seems to be more and more every year and people um, like you who, you know, might uh, want some, some help and see the farm continue. Exactly. Um, like Mike Gingrich has done with, uh, with Pleasant Ridge. I mean, he has this young guy, Andy Hatch, and his wife who are, you know, sort of taking over the cheese making. And um, it's, uh, you know, I guess with anything, whether, with any kind of a relationship, whether it's a business partner or, you know, a, a personal relationship, you've got to find that right person. But it seems like it's not impossible. Um, no, I don't think it is. And I have been, I've been actually thinking a lot about it lately because I think it's time probably for us to look for a cheesemaker. Um, and, and in some ways, I really feel like that cheesemaker needs to be um, maybe from the area, uh-huh. because I think we're in one of those areas, unlike the East Coast or the West Coast, which um, which which has its charm 
when you're from here. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know. relocating somebody from somewhere else might, you know, it's just, I think if someone has roots in the neighbor, in the, in the neighborhood, in the area, it's, it's just, it's that much stronger of a connection because they really are invested in seeing the local economy prosper. Right. So that is my hope that we can find some, um, you know, wonderful young person from southern Indiana, northern Kentucky, who's interested in seeing this, um, seeing this continue. I hope so, because the farm, this farm has been in the family for, uh, off and on, for over 150 years. Wow. It would be great to see it stay there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, any, you know, who knows the, the world, I think serendipity, you know, it definitely still does always play a role in all of this. So maybe someone out there, you know, who comes across this show at some point will like, be like, Hey, <laughs> well, well, and, and there's one thing, I don't know if we have time for it or not, but many of, of the old guard of, uh, among us talk a lot about whether it's easier or more difficult now for, cheesemakers to to do what we did and i i definitely think it's easier um i think at that at the point when we did it for instance we needed a very wide regional or and even national market to support what we did mm-hmm. now the whole emphasis on local um and in limited regional sales is is definitely there. And just the broader appreciation of cheese. I mean, people everywhere now love good cheese, and and the word goat cheese doesn't send them running for the hills. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So between those two things, I think it's a very doable thing for for people who wanted to start a small business and and keep it small. You know, it doesn't have to be um, a huge affair anymore just to support an initial investment. And we see that happening again and again, and as a result of it, you know, incredible cheeses um, are, are happening all the time. And your cheeses, uh, you know, first and, and foremost among them. I, I love all of your cheeses, and uh, yeah, just so appreciate. Oh, well, thank you. So appreciate the work that you guys do. Um, well, I think on that note, unfortunately, I think we need to, um, (laughs) wrap things up for the week. I need to get an hour show. I think it's like, you know, always too short, but, um, but I so thank you for taking the time to, to talk with me and, and, uh, I look forward to seeing the continued evolution of, uh, of Capriole and what's, what's in the future for you guys. What's next? Well, it will be the same thing. Let's just hope it's better. (laughs) (laughs) The same thing, but better all the time. The better all the time. All the time. That is the perfect mantra for a cheesemaker. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next Sunday on Cutting the Curd. All right, Hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby.